Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. starts right now. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Brian Kelly, Dan Nathan, and Guy Dami. Tonight, stocks are stuck in the danger zone as yields sink to new lows, but a top strategist says, don't worry, the Fed is coming to the rescue, and a rate cut could be coming as soon as this month. He will explain. Plus, Tesla sinking to more than a three-year low as the electric vehicle maker hits roadblock after roadblock. But the chartmaster says this stock is so bad, it's good. You won't believe why he's saying to buy the beaten down name now. But we start off with what looked like Big Tech's day of reckoning as the Nasdaq enters correction. Check out the carnage as the biggest names in the market are facing antitrust oversight from the government. Facebook getting hit the hardest, having its worst day since July of last year. Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, all under pressure. So is this the beginning of the end for Big Tech as we know it? And what does this mean for the markets, Guy? Well, it's interesting. I don't think it's. Be, I think it might be closer to the end for big tech. I mean, a lot of these stocks have come off significantly. Listen, Google. I power pitched it a while ago. That was clearly wrong. I'll, but I'll say this: we've mentioned Facebook 165. Look where it closed today, and look at the volume that it traded. Now, Facebook is basically a 50% correction of the December 24th low and a recent high. So that sets up well given the volume we've seen today. But I still think the S&P 500 has another three and a half, four percent. 2650 is the level we've been talking about now for a long time. Now you're starting to hear some other voices saying that. I think that's a logical place to go. I think some of these big tech names can go sideways in the interim. So I think the worst might be over for those names. The worst isn't over for the broader market. But the worst, we don't know what the worst is. And I think that's that's well, the problem, right? So Right. And the problem with this is that part of the bullish thesis here is you have a president who is the stock market president. What he cares about is how high the stock market goes. This type of action where you start bringing government action against public companies, that has to you have to question whether or not he's the stock market president anymore. At least that thesis comes into question. So I think it's a little bit broader than just the tech sector. I understand they were the easy target and the first target for obvious reasons, but it honestly, it could go a little bit further than that. That's what everybody's got to risk concern. Yeah, I mean, I, there's no way he is not the stock market president. So I, I, I think that ultimately it gets down to a place where there is some political agenda that has to go through. I'm not even sure that this is exactly his agenda, frankly. Um, but if you think about the pressure or lack thereof that mega cap tech has had from this administration vis-a-vis what they've seen around the world, obviously Google's, Google's been in detention for a long time. I mean, they've been called into the principal's office for the last 15 years. Uh, that used to be the story of Microsoft's life. By the way, I, you know, and I bet Dan would point this out, one of the most troubling things about today's move for big tech was really that Microsoft lost its mojo. Um, so MAGA. a man who invented wow. the MAGA uh, acronym, if I may. But look, it's back now through the 50-day. It's the first time it's traded through there in a long time, really gets you back to December woes. And Microsoft is an example of a stock that really, it had outperformed the S&P by about 16% in the last 75 sessions. It was the place where people were hiding out safe. And so right now, uh, we knew that there was reason for concern in those other names, and now we've got another one. Yeah, I agree. I think that's actually really important that Microsoft caught some steam throughout the day, closed down about 3%. And obviously that Apple news didn't help. Apple was showing really good relative strength. I think it's important when you think about these mega cap techs is that we know that Facebook, we know that Amazon did not make new highs. 
highs. We know that Apple didn't make new highs. Google closed, closed at an all-time high right before that they um, announced their Q1 earnings earlier. Well, when was that? Uh, about two months ago. And then it just, you know, it's been down 20% in a straight line. So there's a lot of things going on there. I'll just mention this. The inconsistency with which we are fighting a trade war with China, this is about tech. We understand the fact that there wasn't going to be a trade deal that just focused on the trade deficit with China that would have been suitable long term. It was about technology. It's about um, IP theft and forced technology transfer and ultimately 5G. So now if you're going to turn your sights onto our domestic behemoths, which are global behemoths, maybe not in China, it doesn't seem that consistent with trying to win this fight with China. Well, to me. It actually also, puts I mean, our guys at a disadvantage right it's now. It's a pile on to everything else, right? I mean, now all of a sudden we've got India who are going to have tariffs against Mexico last week. Now we've got the DOJ coming after some of our larger companies. I mean, it is just not a friendly environment for American business, which is not a friendly environment for the stock market. So while we may or may not think that, I mean, Trump may come out with a tweet. We don't know that. But at some point, as guys mentioned, the half-life of his tweets becomes very small. So we've got tariffs on all sides, a multi-front trade war going on, a potential global economic slowdown, potential um, backlash in China, a boycott potentially of products here. And then we have tariffs slapped on uh, the most important sector of our stock market. It's interesting. It's, and you have, to, and yeah. you have to wonder if the move in Apple is somehow related to this. I think it probably is in a large degree related entirely to this. You know, I, and again, I'm not an expert in these things, but what if you wake up one day and the, Ch- and the Chinese government says, that's it, no more Apple products, you'll find someplace else. I mean, it's, I'm not suggesting it's trading like that, but the move from oh, 202 it, to 175 has been pretty stark. I, I, I mean, I think Apple might as well be a semiconductor right now. And there's, they, they've been in lockstep. And in fact, the move there. And so I, I just, you know, we have to separate the two. You, you're all right. We've, we've added a new ingredient today uh, in terms of DOJ probes. What does this mean? But to be clear, uh, you know, the momentum for this, um, and and there are, look, there's there is a constituency that makes sense to this administration that they are fighting for um, in these probes. And there's been a lot of people for a long time that have said um, that that basically Amazon is putting businesses out. You know, they, they've they've had any competitive pr- practices, how should we say, for a long time. There, this is popular in some corners of this country. It's not just and, and this administration, not, though. No, I mean, this course. is a bipartisan but, issue. I mean, okay. I think I think that's that's the real problem. With I mean, these companies are are potentially facing an existential threat to their business models well, here's a good from example. both sides of the aisle. Yeah, but Mel, it, it, you know, it's not even a political issue. What happened yesterday with Google's cloud offering? It was down for four hours in parts of America, and, and there was lots of business disruption. There was a lot of disruption to a lot of different services. So I think there's little doubt on either side of the aisle that these businesses like AWS or Google's cloud business or Microsoft's Azure, these are, these are utilities. They need to be regulated as such because we live now in an age where if they go down, there is massive disruption to some really critical functions in our society. So I think that's happening. I think the other issue is, though, but around... You, sorry, but weren't you talking about that in the context of this is an, a, another ingredient in a trade war that makes no sense Well, to what you I'm saying is there's that. certain parts of it that make a lot of sense. When you see that disruption yesterday, you say to yourself, okay, we're going to let these people out in Silicon Valley handle all of the responsibility I, that all I of this goes This is the case for monopoly. But, but I just don't no, think that this is tied to trade war. This has nothing no, to do with but it. But what I'm no, saying no, is no, you no. Have, there's multiple parts of it, okay? And, and, and I think we can all agree that this should be regulated, not in a way that I think is, you know, like makes these companies less competitive, but makes it safer. All of these businesses that rely on those utilities that they have. And so let's use that example, since you brought up Google and the concentration in terms of cloud and emails, et cetera. 
how, what's the remedy to that? You break up the company somehow? And if, you break, if, if breaking up companies is on the table with any of these probes into any of these tech giants, right. who gets hit the hardest? Whose business can actually withstand being broken well, that's up? that's right. And, all and, of what, them. Are, and yeah. what are the remedies? Some of the really? parts for all these faster-growing businesses is higher. Wait, wait, but for Apple, let's say, services and hardware the, <laughs> is a flywheel business, right? One fed on the other. Can you separate them? If was broken up 20 effect. years ago, Apple's not going to be broken up now. But if you, okay. can make the, if you can make the argument that a enterprise-facing business that's so mission-critical, so, AWS, Azure for Microsoft, Google's um, cloud offering, you could say, yes, those should be standalone businesses. They will be valued higher than those businesses are right now as a... Uh, but I guess that's what I'm trying to, you know, should we be factoring in as a worst case scenario a breakup of these companies? Yeah, or no? I think, Is that too I think, far off? No, I think some probability has to be factored in, and that's what the market's doing today. And yes, I, maybe maybe it's going to be marked higher, but the problem is you don't know. A lot of these businesses are valued on network effect. They all talk about their platform and how they can use that to get, to get customers, and if you now break them apart, they no longer have that. So you have to reprice that in the market. Doesn't mean people are going out of business, doesn't mean anything like that. Sure. It just it's means different. that the market market has to reprice these companies. I think we're so far from breaking these companies up, however, and I think, you know, I, I don't want to be jaded because on some level, I do want to believe that regulators are looking at the issues that are making it. There's the, the irony is that they may be stifling innovation. These are supposedly the biggest innovators in the world, and there's a lot of people out there that say, hey, we need to do something. So, uh, but I don't think anything's happening in the short term. I think these are, these are headlines. I think they're scary headlines, and I think they're appropriate headlines vis-a-vis what's going on, especially with the privacy issues and national security issues. There's, there, I mean, people are looking for blood somewhere, but do you really think we're going to break up these companies in the next few months? I, I do not, and I think this is an overreaction today. I think it's interesting, though. You mentioned Microsoft. I think Microsoft is a, I think it's a function of the market finally looked at Microsoft at 25 and a half, 26 times forward earnings and said, you know what, maybe we should start taking profits here in a company whose multiple has not mattered. Now, that comes on the heels of Workday, and Dan mentioned this a couple weeks ago. That stock got smoked today, and obviously Salesforce hasn't performed particularly well. So you wonder now if the market's looking at companies with valuations that might not be reasonable in this environment. That's somewhat concerning. To answer your question quickly, if they were to go down the route of breaking up these companies, I think that's, I'll use the word, catastrophic for the broader market. Yeah. All right, can I just wait well, one yeah. point? So about, this is stock market news. right here, okay? So we're ending Q2 in stocks. just a few weeks, okay? And then we're gonna have, we're gonna have earnings and we're gonna have guidance. And really what this does is it adds a whole heck of a lot of uncertainty to the back half guidance for the year. We're gonna go into the end of this year, uh, end of this quarter, probably without any sort of trade deal whatsoever. If there are more tariffs, like he threatened last week on some of our friends, and we don't have a NAFTA 2.0, then just the second half, earnings is, are probably too high and they need to come down. And guidance will reflect that. So to Guy's point, can we see 2650 in the next few weeks before quarter end? No doubt about it. All right. We've got a news alert here out of D.C. right now about these very tech antitrust concerns. Let's get to Eamon Javers for the very latest. Eamon. Yeah, Melissa, that's right. We're now getting a press release from the House Judiciary Committee announcing that they're going to be doing a bipartisan investigation into big tech companies. The Judiciary Committee saying this is a bipartisan investigation into competition in digital markets. What's interesting about this press release is it quotes both Democrats and Republicans, which is something we've gotten away from a little bit in Washington, D.C. They're saying that they want to look into three main areas of the tech industry. They say they want to look at documenting competition problems in digital markets, examining 
whether dominant firms are engaging in anti-competitive conduct, and also assessing whether existing antitrust laws, competition policies, and current enforcement levels are adequate to address these issues. So a lot there for the Judiciary Committee to dig its teeth into under Chairman Jerry Nadler, but also quoting here in this press release some of the Republican members of the committee as well. So that adds to some of the scrutiny in Washington for some of these big tech giants that you guys have been talking about uh, over at the Department of Justice. Now the House Judiciary Committee saying it's going to get in on the action as well. Is there any a sort of invitation list, Eamon, that was also released with this press release? We don't have it just yet. Um, what we have is the committee saying they're going to have a series of hearings held by the uh, Subcommittee on Antitrust, um, and they say that they're going to focus on the rise of market power online as well as requests for information that are relevant to the investigation. So presumably these tech companies will be getting letters from the committee very soon if they haven't gotten them already. All right. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers in Washington. So we're going to have moments where these guys are going to be up on the hill Answering all it's sorts of questions. the best thing you could hope for. Really? For if, you're, if you're a tech investor, absolutely. Because more often than not, by the time these CEOs get up on the hill, the stock's already sold off. Everything's priced into news. That's the climax of the event. So if you're a tech investor and you're bullish, you're hoping for this. Yeah, you know, I know we're going to have Carter on to talk about the charts. But, I mean, there's negativity here that doesn't go away. So I'll leave the charts, which don't look great right now. But, you know, the one name that we haven't spent enough time talking about in this block is Amazon. I mean, if there's one company that, to me, has a target on their back in terms of putting businesses out and recognizing a lot of the, the fabric of small business in this country. By the way, I love Amazon. I use it every single day. But uh, I do think Amazon's the biggest poster child. And if you look at this stock, this is a stock that's now basically getting back to 1600. It's a stock with a, it, it's it, almost a downward sloping 200 day, which means the long term average on this company means it's been slowly moving this way for a long time. And Amazon, to me, if there's one company that would be caught in the crosshairs, this is the one that they're talking on the hill. Very interesting. A major double top now on Amazon. We talked about it when they reported earnings. But for that comment about next day delivery, yep. that stock would have done a lot faster. Now it's making up for lost ground. I'm with Tim on this one, by All the right. way. Well, it's not just tech in turmoil. The S&P 500 sinking below 2,800 as a 10-year yield falls to fresh lows. But one top strategist says help is on the way in the form of a surprise rate cut. We've got the details. Plus, Speaking of needing help, Tesla sinking to its lowest level in more than three years. But the chart master says this stock is so bad, it's looking good. Mm. He'll tell you what has him pressing the buy button. And later, Boeing CEO speaking to our own Phil LeBeau about when exactly he expects the 737 MAX to be back in action. We'll bring you all the details. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla shares careening with the company stuck in a quagmire of skepticism around its production goals and its own CEO. This despite continued assurances from Elon Musk that demand for Tesla vehicles remains high and the vehicle maker will still meet its steep production and delivery goals. But now with the shares down 46 percent this year, hitting its lowest level in over three years, our next guest says charts of Tesla are actually looking so bad that now is your chance to buy. Chartmaster Carter Worth's over at the plaza to tell us why Tesla's about to do a U-turn. Carter, what are you looking at? Hi, guys. Well, interestingly, in a very bad day, it's very rare if you have a down tape for Tesla to actually outperform Amazon, outperform Facebook, outperform uh, Salesforce.com, and so forth. So a high beta stock that, yes, was down, but it's down almost so much at this point that I think a contrarian call is the thing to do. For starters, it's hated on the street. We have 11 buys, 10 holds, and 15 sells. Now, remember, holds are sells because nobody uh, typically gives a sell rating. Only 5% of all ratings are sells. Hold means wink, wink for sell, but we don't want to offend the banking department. So what you have is basically sells all over the place and very few buys. Let's look at a few stats and a few other things. It's all over the place, right? The street high is 530. The street low is 55. The consensus is 276. And the stock closed today at 178. So it, it's the Wild West in that sense, and it's in many ways anybody's guess. But what we do know is that it is a high beta trade, and it typically overshoots and undershoots the market. And just as you had a fairly big overshoot here, at this point, I think we've undershot by such an amount that actually it's so bad it's good. A couple ways to maybe make that point, so bad it's good. One, it is right back to a prior low. And in fact, if you take a look where this is, it is exactly to the penny at its 2016 low, right there. And the issue is, does that hold? That's on an absolute basis. Now, how about relative compared to 2016 to the market? Much worse. So here is that same chart, and we're going to look at the percentage you're below your 150-day moving average. And keep this in mind. I'm going to pull it back a little further, and then I'm going to pull it back even further. So we are where we were in 16, but we're actually getting down to a low that was seen only one other time in history. How far below trend it has ever been since its IPO. Here is the all data chart. This is literally the lowest point it has ever been. I think you've got a situation of so bad it's good. I want to make the bet that Tesla actually is a time if you're short to be covering and to being small speculative longs. Carter, come on over. Bring him in. Evan will bring uh, the chair over. You know, while Evan's coming over, he can finish seven in a Brooklyn marathon. How many guys are in there? That's why the chair comes over so quickly. Lickety split. All right. So, Carter, let's just say it breaks this level. Is that catastrophic for the stock then? Oh, it's not any particular big level, meaning we know the stock had well-defined tops at a common level for the past, let's say, three years at sort of 290. It's down to 175, which is fairly well-defined lows. Even, let's just say this, let's say for fun it's not going to stop at 175. It's on its way to 75. The path lower presumptively passes through a higher price, meaning an oversold condition, whatever, however you want to characterize it, is at hand. And I think at a minimum, you'd want to be covering some shorts and Tim, speculative. Did you cover your short? No, I'm actually rolling down puts right now, which I think makes sense considering the volatility in the stock. And I actually did that today. I went from 175s down to 125s. And, and, and Carter's work on the technical side is always great. And technicals are a, a, a read. But the story here is about fundamentals. And, and to me, if you think about There are about no fundamentals. The, there are no fundamentals. <laughs> 
Sorry? There are no fundamentals. Okay. So uh, spoken <laughs> as a chartist, um, there are no fundamentals, but ultimately... They have no profits, so what are the fundamentals? It's just a dream. Okay. Well, then... So there are no fundamentals. So there's no valuation. There's no price to book. There's, what is it? It's a guy with a tent who makes cars in a tent. <laughs> Sounds like he's talking my book right now. So yes. I agree with that. Um, my point, though, is an oversold condition. By the way, Tesla's not as oversold on an RSI as... FedEx, as GM, as NVIDIA. Just to be clear, they are actually more oversold than Tesla is. But you know, to me, that, that is kind of the point. I, I think that the, the fundamentals right now are a case where demand is actually truly being questioned. Some of the biggest analysts on the street, people like Adam Jonas, have, have, have basically referred to this as a restructuring story, which means there's a lot of restructuring to go. Well, it's just like any other stock. There are a lot of people who like it long. Uh, as you know, we've all, I think we've all liked it short, but this is the point where I think you want to take yeah, the so road less this, travel. So yeah. Like, if you got that bounce, because <clears throat> it's just, to your point, it might just be an oversold bounce. That's all it could be. So where, where does it find massive resistance? Right. Where is so, the prior breakdown So the, the whole point is, right, this is a fast money show, right, yeah. option action. It's all yeah. about finding trades yeah. and making money if we can. The point here is to try to catch something that is oversold for, what, could it be 6%, 4 could it be 12 But you want to be quick. If and as you're paid to take the risk to gamble on a speculative stock in an oversold condition, if you get your profits, you got to take them. Uh, when you said that this is a company with no fundamentals... Well, what are the fundamentals? Uh, so, no, I mean, I mean so, there is no, there's no CFA. Right. No, there's no, no CFA. I, I that. Does that, does that is, it, is the implication that, that <laughs> technical analysis is more accurate in these sorts of cases where the company doesn't have profits, where there isn't well, price to book? Well, you wonder about isn't. that. I mean, I, per, you'd say it, it might have its error rate, too, and yet how can... Again, there's not a single person. How could you have a? How could you have well-trained people? Some believe it's worth 500. Some believe it's worth 50. That right there tells you there's a problem on the fundamental side, right? So what we can do now is only make a judgment that it's maybe oversold, or one could say, no, I want to double my short and really press in. That's perfectly valid too. But I think you have to make your calls here based on charts and price action, nothing else. Carter, thank you. Thanks, guys. Carter Worth. Quarter so macro. Guy, what My favorite was when Carter says in the middle of a sentence, "Please." I, it just, it just kind of, it's just <laughs> like very polite. Isn't it adorable? I, listen, not to take any umbrage with what Carter said, but if you go back to February 2016, right after the turn of the new year, this stock actually traded down about 151 or so before the S&P exploded off of 1810. So. I hear what he's saying, but good for Tim, and I think there is a shot now that 150 is in the crosshairs. Yeah, I, I, for me, I'd be looking for 150 and big volume, right? That's what you want to see. To me, I haven't seen a capitulation day in this yet, but I am looking for something for that rebound like Carter's looking yeah, for. Yeah, and I just want to say, I mean, to the point, I think if you caught Carter's fast money trade and it got back to 250, that would be the level of the century to lay out shorts, especially if you're as bearish on the fundamentals as Tim is. All right, for more on what Wall Street is saying about Tesla, head on over to CNBC.com. I'm Melissa Lee, you're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. Here's what else is coming up on Fast. That's right, stocks are in the danger zone as yields sink to fresh lows. But one top strategist says, don't worry, help is on the way. He'll be here to explain why. Plus, have you had a single order for the Max yet since the grounding? No. Boeing CEO Dennis Mullenberg facing the fallout from its 737 MAX crash. But you won't believe when he said the planes will be in the air again. We'll hear from him later this hour. There's much more Fast Money right after this. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, 
and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks in the danger zone, sinking well below that key 2,800 level as the 10-year yield falls to fresh lows. Let's get to Bob Pisani down at the New York Stock Exchange with more on this. Hey, Bob. Hello, Melissa. You know, key growth stocks are really getting hit today as the market has come to believe that trade tensions between the U.S. and China plus new tariffs on Mexico may be a permanent part of the investment landscape this year. Just take a look. Twitter, Adobe, MasterCard, PayPal, Microsoft all down notably today. Meanwhile, more value-oriented names, those with slower growth prospects, they were all up. Retailers like Target, steel names like Nucor, industrials like Textron, consumer names like Campbell's and Kimberly Clark, all up today. Firms are cutting their earnings estimates for this year. That's a problem. And next year as well, Bank of America did it today. They cut the 2019 earnings estimates for the S&P 500 from $168 to 166 That's a 1.2% decline. And from 180 to 176 for 2020, that's a nearly 3% reduction. Strategists see three big problems right now. First, traders were pricing in an upturn in the earnings situation in the second half. Not a downturn, but those chances are now diminishing. You saw what happened today with Bank of America. Second, traders are coming to believe these trade deals may never be settled. The tariff threats are remaining a constant part of the investment landscape. And finally, that there's a tougher regulatory climate for big tech names like Google, Amazon, and Facebook. Now, where does this Fed stand on all this? The St. Louis Federal Reserve President Jim Bullard said today there is a case for a rate cut even without the trade situation. Many now believe the Fed will cut rates at least three times this year to reflect the lower growth outlook. Little wonder that the S&P is back to the same level of January 2018. We're below 2,800. By the way, that 2,800 level has been key support. The S&P 500 has met both support and fact resistance as well at this level quite a few times since early 2018. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob, thank you. Bob Pisani. Well, expectations rise for the Federal Reserve to cut rates. Our next guest says we could see Fed action as early as this month. Let's bring in Tony Dwyer, Chief Market Strategist at Canaccord Genuity. Tony, welcome back. Good, good to see Great you. Great to be here, Mel. Thanks uh, for having me. What has to happen broadly in order for the Fed to consider cutting rates this month? For the life of me. I can't understand why they have it yet. Not because there's this catastrophic, sorry to use your word, guy, um, this catastrophic economic development pending. They made a mistake in the fourth quarter. Everybody on the planet says they made a mistake on the fourth quarter. Op-eds were written about the mistake before they made it in the fourth quarter. So the cut that I've been looking for since January or since the fourth quarter isn't because there's this economic catastrophe. Of course there's going to be a slowdown. You had rates go up and almost inverted the yield curve last year. Now you're back to the same kind of thing. But the bottom line is it's about inflation. The, the whole reason that they were, were tightening was fear of labor inflation and what that was going to feed through to core CPI or core PCE, which they use, 
the five-year inflation break-evens are going lower. If you looked at a chart, you could be a political science major like me and see that inflation's low on the chart and going lower. There's no sign of a pickup in it. So let's fix the mistake is what I'm talking about. So just it's just undoing what was done yeah. in the fourth quarter. But you, you think that this, this may not be the only rate cut this year. Correct. It's at least one this year. I mean, you guys are probably sick of it. The, the viewers are probably sick of me talking about the 1995 analog. But again, you had almost negative growth in the first two quarters of 1995 because of all the rate hikes in, in 1994. You had a trade war pending with Japan where you were going to put 100% tariffs on the top 13 Japanese car. They were as big to the global economy as China is today. And then, of course, you almost inverted the yield curve. What happened? The market rates came down so hard that it forced the Fed to cut rates to avoid a true inversion of the 210 curve. So, Tony, do you worry, though, if we do have a cut now? I think Fed funds futures are pricing like a 38 percent chance of a cut in in just a a few weeks. Are you worried that it just sets off a dovish tilt across the globe and we are just get locked into we know how much of sovereign debt is in uh, negative yielding territory? Could it be the start of something not good for risk assets? Dan, I I would make the case that the long end will go up on expectations of a rate cut. Look at what happened today. You had a risk on trade and and you re-steepened. You're steepening the 210 curve, which is what drives shadow banking. All the LBOs, all the M&A, all the private equity lending, all the hedge fund lending, all the non-traditional bank lending known as shadow banking is going bananas, and you're re-steepening the 210 yield curve. That showed up today in the cyclical sectors, energy, materials, financials, industrials, ripped, right? Where the growth slow, the, the uh, what's it called, slobalization is the new buzz term. It drives me crazy. Uh, it's like the synchronized global recovery in the beginning of 2018. Now we're in globalization. Take the other side of the trade. But the bottom line is you, you saw it today in the activity that you're going to get the 10-year, the long rates everywhere globally should bump up if the Fed cuts rates because it's stimulative. So, and actually, my view is that the Treasuries are way overbought here. Um, I oh, think yeah. that they're, they're, they're not representative of the market environment. Having said that, we got an ISM today that printed back to October of 2016, the month That's before right. elections. That's right. What does that mean to you? It means that it's reinforcing the view that I've had for a while, since we've been talking since the fourth quarter. The whole bull case to me is a slowdown. It's not better second. It's, it's the fear that you're not going to have any growth. Just like ni- in 1995, you had two quarters of 0.5% GDP at the time as reported. That, that was almost a recession. You went up, you went up more, almost 20% in the first half. By the time they cut rates in July, mm-hmm. you went up another 15%. Guess what? Tech underperformed. The growth, some of the slower growth areas underperformed. And the more economically sensitive started to lift because the Fed was cutting rates. The whole bull story here is you slow down aggressively enough to let the Fed react to the lower inflation numbers, but not anticipate a recession. Tony, thank you. Tony Dwyer, Canaccord Genuity. If the Fed came out with a rate hike in June, which would surprise rate most, rate cut, excuse me, in June, which would surprise most investors, how would the markets react? Well, personally, I think it's very negative. I mean, I, you know, but I, again, I always look half full, uh, half empty, not half full. So I would say, what do in they life? see? Would you say you do no, that I in am. life? I, I was, a, I grew up in the Wall Street. What can go wrong will go wrong, and you know, always hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. So I would say that's madness of the of the highest order. With that said, if you want some in- indication that maybe Tony's on to something, AT&T, after President Trump effectively mm-hmm. said boycott AT&T, was up 1.7% on a pretty lousy tape. Why is that interesting? Because 
I think people said, you know, the dividend becomes more interesting as rates continue to go lower. So I think we'll see the answer to whether or not the how the market's going to react over the next couple of weeks. We had Jim Bullard out today with the trial balloon of, hey, I think we could probably cut rates relatively soon. Market didn't react, at least in my view, when it came out, market didn't react. If we start to get other Fed governors over the next few weeks, start to make comments like that, the market will, will price this in. And if the market goes up on that, they cut in June. I think it's positive in the relatively short term. Yeah, I just make one point. Listen, I'm not an economist. And his case about 95, it may be true. It's a totally different uh, global economy now. Think about what are we trying to do with NAFTA and globalization and all these trade issues. It's a different economy. Tech has changed everything. So I'm not sure that is a great um, analogy. I'll just make this point. If you go back and look in the last 20 years, we talked about this the other night on the show, in 2000, 2001, when the Fed started cutting rates to kind of offset some of like slower growth around the world, when they started doing it again in 08, this was not good for risk assets. It just wasn't. So if we're at that place again, I just don't, I think you want to have less exposure. Bond yields went to 207 on the 10-year. So to say that the market hasn't responded to I, I, I No, no, the stock market hasn't responded, not the bond market. So gotcha. after Bullard's yeah. comment. I'm saying it after Bullard's comment today, came right down. you would have thought that the market closed on the highs, and or, or even at that point, if it ripped. But it didn't at all. Stock market, not bond. Got it. Coming up, Deutsche Bank sticking to a new all-time low today as the European bank nightmare continues. But one top analyst says it might not be as bad as you think. He'll be here to explain. Plus, Boeing CEO Dennis Muhlenberg telling CNBC earlier today the 737 MAX could be up and running again by the end of the year. We'll tell you what it means for the stock when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Banks across the pond seem to be in crisis mode and things might get even worse for these financials. Dom Chu's in the newsroom breaking it down. Dom. Well, those European banks, Melissa, have had a go, rough go of it. It's been probably a longer-term trend for some of the most embattled European financials. I mean, just look at shares of Deutsche Bank. Another day, another record low. It's lost 16% of its value year-to-date. It's lost around 39% of its value in just the last 12 months. Now, for perspective, in May of 2007, pre-financial crisis, those shares were trading above $159 apiece, and today they got as low as around $6.64. According to data from FactSet, Deutsche Bank shares now trade at 20% of book value or an 80% discount to book value, depending on how you want to look at it. Other big name banks in Europe are also trading at deeper discounts to their book values. Fellow German lender Commerce Bank trades at 28% of its book value. Societe Generale in France trading at around 33% of book value. Unicredit in Italy trades at around 39% of book value. And then Barclays in the United Kingdom trades at roughly 48% of book value. Some traders will make adjustments and look at a measure called tangible book value, but the story pretty much stays similar. Many of the biggest brand name banks in Europe trade at a discount valuation to their U.S. counterparts. Melissa, not sure exactly when investors will call a bottom in those valuations, but it's certainly a trade theme we'll pay attention to. Back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you. Dom Chu in the newsroom. Guy Dami, you've yes. been on the Deutsche Bank drumbeat for a very, very long time. Yeah, and you know, to think it's just Deutsche specific, listen, I don't know, but I would say, listen, you can't say it isn't. You have to at least have some semblance that maybe it is systemic. I think it is. It's the largest derivatives book ever. And you look at way Citibank trading. Citibank, tangible book in Citibank is $65, close to 62 dollars Why? In my opinion, European risk. 
Deutsche Bank is a mess, in my opinion, that will continue to go lower. And we're not just saying it today. Mm-hmm. We've been saying that for the last two years. You're more on the value side. So do you see any value in these? I do. I do see value. Um, and I do think that there's a dynamic here with the ECB where if one point you thought they were going to start to begin hiking sometime in early 2020, in March, as most people, they push that back probably to September, probably to December, um, if at best you hope for that environment. Um, so I, I like the banks. I think, you know, we talk about $13 trillion in negative yielding assets. They have most of them. And I think this is a tough environment with the ECB. Hands are tied. All right. Now, European banks may look like they are in crisis mode, but our next guest says they could be showing some signs of life. Bob Michael is the global head of fixed income at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Uh, he joins us for more. Uh, Bob, let's be clear. You like the debt side of things. Here. Yeah, but there are a lot of good things going on in European mm-hmm. banks. If you look at asset quality, it's improved every single year for the last three years when measured by non-performing loans. And that's including in some places like Italy, which everyone feels they should be concerned about. When you look at non-performing loans, the last three years, they've dropped from close to 18% to 8%. So that's a very good story there. On top of that, the banks have spent the post-crisis environment raising capital and investing that capital in somewhat riskless securities. They have these fortress-like balance sheets. I think this is where debt and equity investors come to a fork in the road. As a debt investor, I like the certainty of return of capital. If you're an equity investor, the return on capital may be a little bit low. When you, I I mean, I understand that you're looking at the fundamentals and you see what you see, but does it get to a point where you take a look at a Deutsche Bank, let's say, and you see the stock making new low after new low and you think it it could get sucked into this sort of vicious vortex of the the stock goes down and then it's difficult for them to service their debt? Um, sure. There are always situations like that where, you, where you're looking at the leverage of, of the banking system. I actually think Deutsche Bank is a specific example. They were very slow to reorganize coming out of the financial crisis. They hung on to too many losing lines of businesses and were late to reform largely around a consumer and commercial bank. So, Bob, I'm curious, is there a world or a scenario where the equity of these banks could go close to zero, right, or zero, but the bonds do really well? Because you look at credit default swaps, and they haven't moved at all. So it seems like the bonds are the place to be. Equities might go much lower. Now, I I think that's probably a bridge too far for me. I, I like something there at the bottom of the capital structure to protect me. I think as soon as you start talking about zero equity, you're talking about reformation, restructuring, and ultimately the debt investors get pulled into that, particularly now that all of a bank's bonds are, are eligible to be bailed in to bail out shareholders. So that's kind of the, the Mason-Dixon line you cross there. So, Bob, you mentioned Deutsche Bank is probably Deutsche Bank specific. I respect that opinion. But is there a chance that that derivatives book they have is sort of the ticking time bomb, not unlike what we saw 10 or so years ago with a Lehman Brothers or a Bear Stearns? Um, I, I don't think so. I, I think to, to believe that, you have to assume that all their counterparties are naive about the exposure at, at Deutsche Bank. Um, and, and I think that their counterparties have managed to lay off a lot of risk outside of that. 
All right, Bob, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming by. Great, thank you. Bob Michael. Yeah, but so that risk looks like it's been disseminated among a lot of other European banks. Just look at the equity, look at the SX7E, that's the Eurostoxx Bank Index. It's banging along a bottom that it's been trading at since the post-financial crisis. The low, um, I think, in 2009 was somewhere like 85. It's trading just above that during the euro. Uh, you know, when they finally were starting to get their act together, 011, 12, it traded as low as 72, 73. So the equities across the region and the banking index, they trade very badly. So the fact that they're not uh, just isolated at Deutsche Bank, whose equity for all intents and purposes is a donut, it's a zero, it's going there. They can't even merge with the other biggest bank in Germany when they were told to do so by their regulators. So to me, I actually think just look at the equity is telling you that the problems are far from over. So the EUFN is the ETF you can use that actually gets you exposure to the European banks. Dan points out, down 86%, especially in, in, in essentially cap-weighted terms because of all the dilution since the highs of before the crisis. So um, it's been an ugly trade longer term. Uh, but as Bob pointed out, uh, the, the balance sheets aren't as bad as people think. Your biggest issue is that the net interest margins are terrible because of where yield curves sit in Europe right now. Until that gets better, I don't think you're going to see much on EPS. But is there a value play there on a balance sheet? Yes. There might be, but I, I still think the equities have a long way to go. But you look at the credit default swaps, they're not moving. So this is not a 2008 scenario. I think that's really important. You have a lot of people out there, that, particularly ECB, ready to step in here. So I don't think it's a 2008 scenario. But that doesn't mean that Deutsche Bank stock can't go to $1 or $2. Still ahead, dark clouds forming over the tech space. But there is one name reporting this week that traders are betting could be a bright spot for investors. We'll tell you what that is. Plus, Boeing shares sinking today, even as the CEO says that 737 MAX planes could be back in flight later this year. What could save the struggling stock? We'll explain. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Boeing taking a hit again today as CEO Dennis Muhlenberg tries to do some damage control, speaking to our own Phil LeBeau, who joins us right now for more on the conversation. Hey, Phil, where are the highlights? And Melissa, I think we're going to be hearing more from Dennis Muhlenberg over the next several weeks as they try to move the 737 MAX fix to a position where perhaps the FAA says, yes, this plane is good to fly again. During our interview today, he said that the current software fix for the MCAS flight control system for the 737 MAX, they're currently putting that through simulator testing. After that, there's going to be a recertification flight. Then an application would be filed with the FAA for recertification of the plane. That's likely to happen soon. No time frame on that. With regard to the airlines that have said, you know what, we expect this plane to be back in August. We asked Dennis Mullenberg, is it going to be back in August? And he said, look, the most I can commit to is that I expect it to be flying by the end of this year. And oh, by the way, he has heard the numerous comments that have been out there from travelers as well as pundits, a whole bunch of people who have said they're not going to get on this plane and fly it when it returns to service. Here's what he had to say. I've heard those comments. And again, and when, what's your reaction when you hear people say, I'm not getting on it? Yeah. Well, first of all, we, we deeply regret the impact. Uh, we're, we're sorry for the lives that were lost. This will always be with us as a company. I can, I can tell you that it, it weighs heavily on us every day. And when I hear these comments from the traveling public, and as you might guess, I spend a, a lot of time in airports, and I've heard these comments, and they are, they are uh, they're tough. They, they, they wear on us deeply as a company. So you take a look at shares of Boeing, and we're going back to March 13th. That's when the 737 MAX was grounded. Look at what the shares have done since then. We should point out, Melissa, that Dennis Mullenberg says they have not received a single order, a single new order since then, 
for a 737 MAX. Melissa, back so, to you. So no new orders for the 737 MAX. And then, Phil, what's your understanding of how this is impacting the development of the next planes in the pipeline, like the midsize jet? Well, they say at this point that they continue with the work that they're doing, whether it's the 777X, which the first flight is going to happen with that later this year, likely. They're in the process of testing the engines for the 777X. But then when you look at that middle market plane, uh, the plane that some people have called the 797, although it's not been officially named, that's not expected to be in service once they authorize this and what till 2025, 2026. So there's some time there, but that's going to be a key focus for regulators because you can bet they're going to be looking at the development of that plane and comparing it to with some of the problems and the mistakes that were made with regard to development of the 737 MAX. But again, that's a totally different plane. The MAX was taking the 737 and then seeing how they could certify it without having to go through a whole long process. Yep. All right, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau in Chicago for us. Uh, where do you stand on Boeing right now? Uh, to, you know, look, I, I think this company has been through this before. I know that sounds like we haven't really seen this before, but I think if you think of them in the context of both who they compete with, their order book, uh, the timeline to creation, and, and essentially where this company has actually been with the FAA at times, I, I think, you know, 320 is a really important level for the stock. Uh, but I, I, think, I think you can own this stock here and be very happy with it. I think back half of the year is the time you take a look at this. I think it's going to take a massive PR effort to get people comfortable with getting back on this plane. President, uh, CEO's already said it's not going to be the end of the year. I'd make a bet it's probably going to be 2020 before these are flying. I think obviously this China situation is weighing us as well, so they're sort of getting a double whammy. But, you know, I thought the stock would stop at 375. That was incorrect. But you're talking about a trough valuation for a company whose earnings probably haven't been fundamentally impacted with a defense sector, which is 30 percent of revenues, which is basically trading for peanuts. So in terms of valuation, it's ridiculous. Doesn't mean it can't get cheaper, but I think it's pretty interesting right here. All right, coming up, Box getting crushed on its earnings report and adding to what's been a stormy few weeks for the cloud space. Traders here betting on clear skies ahead for one name reporting tomorrow. We've got the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Box getting crushed on its earnings report after the company lowered its guidance, this adding to a tough month for the cloud stocks. But one trader is betting things could clear up for one name reporting tomorrow. Dan's over at the Plasma with the action. Hey, Dan. Yeah, hey, Mel. So it's Salesforce.com. This is the big kahuna in the space, obviously a big growth leader, and it's performed very, very well over the last few years. But tomorrow they report after the close. The options market is implying about a 5.5% move. That is versus the 4.25% average over the last four quarters. Um, call volume ran really hot today on the day the stock was down almost five percent call volume is three times that of puts but there seemed to be a lot of rolling action what do i mean by that so traders rolling out of higher strike calls and rolling them down to something that is closer to the money one of the trades that caught my eye today the largest trade of the day um, when the stock was trading at 148.30 shortly after the opening a trader sold to close 7,000 of the september 155 calls and bought to open 7,000 of the September 150 calls. Again, just rolling it closer to um, the money here. Let's go to the charts. Pretty interesting setup here. Obviously, the stock found a lot, I don't even know what that's doing, uh, found a lot of resistance at that, well, there you see that, right? And now it just broke through this support. The stock had been trading in a very tight range um, for months now, really underperforming the NASDAQ here. And just quickly, on a five-year basis, when you look at this thing, massive double top. Obviously, there's some pretty good room to the downside. this thing were to break. Some of the other names that have reported lately
recently workday in particular has not traded that well after some of the metrics were not up to smuff, especially for a stock that trades at the valuations that these do. All right. Thanks for that, Dan. For more Options Action, check out the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, final trades. Final trade time, Tim. Bond markets, I think, are ahead of the equity markets here, but they have two cuts this year and two cuts next year. By the TBT, things are overbought. BK. In a world full of political uncertainty, you want apolitical money. Gold's one of those choices. GDX is the way to play it. Dan. Uh, yeah, so Tim's EUFN, that's the European banks. I think you sell them all summer on rallies. All summer. Do you really all believe that or are you just summer. doing it to stick it uh, No, I really do. Okay. I mean, I, I really My think. EUFN. Thank Did you. you say stick it to Tim? Yeah. That's Finn. Yeah. That's yeah. the use of the phrase. I think it's a fair question. I think copper might have bounced. FCX, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, my goodness. That does it for us. See you back here tomorrow at 5 more fast. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.